Today, as Christians, uh, maybe you know this, we live in very anti-Christian times. Uh, We live in a day where Christ is not just not preferred, uh, but he is uh, hated by the world. Uh, Where the Bible is, it's not just not known, though that's true, but it's flat out rejected when it is known. Uh, Where truth should just be your opinion, Uh, you have your opinion, I have my opinion, no one's really right or wrong. And to say that someone is right or that someone is wrong is hate speech. You're you're a bigot if you'd call somebody right or wrong. And as a Christian, uh, John Piper once said that we now in the 21st century... Uh, have lost what he calls the home field advantage, uh, meaning that years ago and not, not long ago, that to be a Christian in the world was actually very beneficial to you, that people respected you more. Uh, oh, you go to church. You're probably a pretty good person, uh, that you were respected. That it was good to go to church culturally, that it brought cultural benefits. And now those things have changed. It's no longer acceptable to be those things. Rather, it's actually annoying or it's bad to be those things. And as Christians, we are prone to have, I think, at least two responses. Um, At least for me, these are are ones that come to my heart. I think that's all true. How can you respond? There's two ways, I think. One, very simply, is to recoil, to be less offensive, uh, to keep my faith inside my home, in my car, in my church, I don't want to bother anybody. I just want to just, I'll be a Christian at home and I'll keep my faith to myself. I'll be less offensive. Or you could respond with a a radical Christian faith, flavored with courage, full of joy, and aimed at making much of Christ in all of your life. And if you're like me, uh, the first one is very easy. I can just be quiet. Just I'll just be my own Christian. No one no even needs to really know about it. But I think the Bible is pretty clear that we should respond with the second one. Namely, no, you shouldn't draw back behind the, the curtain. You should actually speak about Christ and be a Christian out in the world. And I believe that we need to be prodded by the word, by the spirit, to not to worry about these things, not to have fear or to have apathy or to, do, uh, to, to respond incorrectly out of pressure. But we should choose the, the, the other option, which is to be faithful and courageous. Uh, there's a man named J.C. Ryle. He lived uh, a couple hundred years ago. And in his day, he saw what he called, and I love this phrase, uh, a jellyfish kind of Christianity. And in his day, he, he, he was an Anglican bishop, so very kind of like a pastoral role in a sense. And he saw that in his day, uh, Christianity was very, very weak. And here's what he said. That there, there's a Christianity that it's a jellyfish, meaning it, it, it was without a bone or a muscle or power. Listen to what he said. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a quote, a lengthy, but I want you to hear it. It's very, very punchy, and I hope that you will receive it well. It's very encouraging. We have hundreds of jellyfish clergymen who seem not to have a single bone in their body of divinity. We have thousands of jellyfish sermons preached every year. Sermons without an edge or a point or a corner, smooth as a billiard ball, awakening no sinner and edifying no saint. And worst of all, we have myriads of jellyfish worshipers, respected church-going people who have no distinct and definite views about any point in theology. We lack discernment of things that differ, 
any more than a colorblind person can distinguish colors. They think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. Everything is true and nothing is false. All sermons are good and none are bad. Every clergyman is sound and no clergyman is unsound. It's very provocative, isn't it? I don't, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a, a squishy, jellyfish, pastor, weak. I don't want to be that or a Christian. And my prayer is that you don't want that from me and that you don't want that for you, that you don't want to be a just, I'm just going to go with the flow and just, I'm just going to, I'll just Christian somewhere. I don't, I don't think you want that as a Christian. I hope that you don't. And what you see in the book of Acts, however, is they weren't those things, right? They weren't just, oh, let's just be quiet. I mean, they were out in the world, right? They were radically just, honestly, radically, radically regular, right? There wasn't a second level of spirituality they had. They were just like us. They had a radically normal Christian life. They lived in the fear of God. They loved Christ and they loved the spirit and were dependent upon him and the word. And the world needs this type of Christianity. Your church needs that type. Your family, your, your culture, your workplace needs this radical flavor of, I can't be like that. I need to be firm and to be lovingly obedient. So today, Paul has four ways to encourage you in that, to have this, what I call it, it's, it's a radically normal Christian life. I think these things seem like, whoa, this is just like another step. I think it's actually very normal to live this way that Paul is saying. But we are, like me, we are shy, we are uncomfortable, we get scared. I think Paul has four ways to do that. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says that we should, uh, that in doing so, we will be, the, the weak will be admonished, the faint-hearted will be encouraged. And I think that if you're in one of those categories, that you will be either admonished or encouraged or strengthened. That's my hope for you today. So four ways to exhort you to a radical, normal Christian life. Look at verse 13. First, Christians must remain watchful. This is Paul's simple charge. It's very simple, right? Be watchful, uh, be alert, be on guard. Right? This world is not our home. Uh, we're like troopers that got parachuted in behind Emmy lines, right? We're just, okay, it's, it's time. To, like, we can't just take a nap. We have to be awake and alert to what's going on, right? This is probably one of the most, I think, a very forgotten Christian discipline, right? To be watchful, to to be alert to what's going on with our, with our self, with our sin, with the world. The Bible says that you have three main enemies, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? Those are your top three, really your main three enemies according to the Bible. And the worst thing about all three of them is they never sleep, right? Your flesh never sleeps. Uh, the world, they have night shift workers, so they don't ever sleep, right? It's a joke. And Satan never sleeps, right? which means that we must not be so sure of ourselves. Uh, coasting in the Christian life is very costly, isn't it? Uh, your indwelling sin, your flesh longs for, just do it one more time. You can do it again, it's okay. No one's gonna care. One more shot, just give it one more day. Do it one more time, one more excuse, right? I don't know if you've ever been to the beach. Uh, the beach isn't really in Missouri. It's not really very close. Uh, but when I've gone to the beach, I like to body surf. I like just go in the water and just let a wave just crush me. I don't know why. It's just been fun. Uh, I like surfing in the, in, the, in the water, especially in California. We do a lot of body surfing. I, I remember a lot of times um, I would turn around and go like, did someone move our stuff? Was my umbrella back there? 
And of course, it didn't move. What moved? I did, right? The, the current took me, right? The, I just drifted away, right? It was very slow. It's almost unnoticeable. Uh, but I was carried further away than when I thought I was just actually standing still. The Bible says the same thing, that our hearts, they never really stay still. We may think that they are, but we're drifting. We're either drifting away or we're drifting towards Christ. Those are the only options. D.A. Carson's, again, I've used this quote, I don't know how many times it just has stuck with me. D.A. Carson said simply that people do not drift towards holiness. And if you're like me, you know it's not true. If you take a day off, so to speak, you, forget, you, don't, re, you don't read your Bible one day, the next day you forget. And then it just, you drift. You just, how did I get this far out, right? Do you remember what command Jesus gave the disciples in Matthew 26? So Jesus was praying in Gethsemane. Uh, they were really close to Jesus, like uh, distance-wise, right? And they fell asleep. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Matthew 26, he said this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they're within arm's reach of Jesus, right? Like the most crucial uh, point of his life up, up before the cross. And they just fell asleep, right? How much more are we? And all of us here, me included, are prone to drift away from our North Star, which is Christ. This ap- apathy or laziness, or on the other side, it's legalism and re- religiosity, right? One promises freedom. I don't have to do any obedience because I don't want to be a slave. I just, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be spontaneous and just obey when I want to, and I'll read when I want to and do these things. That promises freedom, but it doesn't. Then the other is you have to do, 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 do. You can't not, you, you have to obey every minute. You, you, you have to do extra things. And when it does, it creates a shell of righteousness. And the inside, there's just no heart for it. Just, well, the Pharisees, they did a lot of good things on the outside, but they were just empty within, right? So what's the cure? I don't want to be either of those. I don't want to drift away into apathy and I don't want to create law where there is no law. So how do we do this? Well, Proverbs 4.23 says this. It's a very simple command. Keep your heart with all vigilance. So every believer needs to have uh, their, their eyes, their heart, their, their faith restored from God's word by the spirit awakening us, right? Opening our eyes again and having a fresh love for Christ, right? It's not external. That's not the remedy. I think that helps to maybe get you train tracks to go on, but you need passion for Christ, and you won't fall away, right? You need to watch and pray, for apart from Christ, we can do what? You know what he said? Nothing, right? So we need to watch ourselves. This is why, as an unbeliever, we say that the new birth is necessary, right? Because as a non-Christian, you're, you're blind to your condition, you're blind to sin, you're, you're blind to your need for Christ, right? That's why you need to be born again. It's necessary, right? So Paul's command here is to be watchful. Uh, like, the, like the royal guards with those really tall black hats in, in the UK that stand there and just watch, right? They're not distracted. They, they're always watching, right? So we must be watchful. We must have Mr. Self, Kale, myself should be on my prayer list. I, I should pray for myself all the time because I need it most. Genesis 4 says, sin desires to have you, so you should be watchful. But let me give you some encouragement that Christ always lives to make intercession for you. That though you, like me, you're not always watchful. You do fall, you do stumble, you do drift. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus always lives 
for you in that way. He keeps your life. He keeps you from evil. Psalm 121, if you don't know that psalm, please read it. It says over and over that he never slumbers nor sleeps. He's always watchful for you. So though his disciples fall asleep, Christ continued praying, right? And when we fail, Christ continues to prevail. Hebrews 13, 5 says that the, this promise is ours, that God will never leave you nor forsake you. So if Christ is praying for us, Romans eight thirty four, as we read this morning, of whom should you be afraid? Nobody, right? He watches for you. Second way, Christians must continue in the faith. So we must be watchful. We must continue in the faith. Look at verse 13 again. If there's anything worth digging our heels into in the world, it is this right here. It is standing firm in biblical truth, in the faith, right? The only hill worth dying on is Calvary, where Christ died. So if we're to be steadfast in anything, it is steadfast in Christ and in the word, right? Look at verse 13. It's very simple. Stand firm in the faith, right? This is where uh, it's kind of strange. You're commanded to be what you are. What, what do I mean by that? Well, Christians are those who remain in the faith. So Christians stay in the faith. That, that's a command. But also it's a description, right? Christians are those who stay in the faith, but also you're commanded stay in the faith, right? It's a description of what you're called to be and who you actually are. It's both. So we must persevere in the faith, right? We run the race. We fight the good fight. We endure to the end. When waves of doubt come, when suffering comes, what do we do? We dig our heels in, right? I know God's word. I know Christ. I know him, right? We, we dig in. We stay in, right? We don't abandon him. Do you know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, about the story of hearing my words and not doing them? Do, do you remember that story? So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the story after, after his entire sermon. In Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, Jesus says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine does them will, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you know the story. The rain comes, the flood comes, and the house stands firm, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 26, and does not do them will be the foolish man. What's he do? He built his house on sand, right? Storm comes and just blasts the house away, right? Notice that this talks about standing firm uh, in 1 Corinthians, standing firm in the faith. So it's the faith. What is the faith? Well, it's clearly it's Christianity. It's the doctrine. It's knowing Christ, right? Ephesians 4 says we have one faith. It's knowing Christ. And in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that it's not the strength of the house, right? The guy in sand could have used Concrete, could use truss, could use great, strong oak, could use cardboard. Doesn't matter, right? It's, it's the foundation why it washed away, right? So therefore, is not the strength of our faith that keeps us. It's the object of your faith. Do you see the difference? It's not how strong your faith is that will keep you. It's how strong the object of your faith is. Let me give you an example Perhaps you think you have weak faith. Man, like, I doubt a lot. Like, come and go. I have cold seasons, more than warm lately. What do I stand on? I don't even, I don't know. Like, pastor, I don't, I have a fainting faith. Romans 14.1 talks about a weak faith. Thomas Watson said it this way. It's a beautiful picture. I want to read to you. It's very simple. A little faith is faith as a spark of fire is 
fire. A weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ. The promises are not made to strong faith, but to true. The promise does not say he who has giant faith, but whosoever believes, even if his faith is small. So do you hear that? It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of Christ, right? Yes, your faith matters, but a weak faith has a strong Christ. Matthew 12 says a bruised reed, Matthew 12, 20, a bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, like a little candle, he will not quench. So what sustains you when you have weak faith, it's not the strength of your faith, because it's a weakened moment, it's the strength of Christ. And Abraham had this as well. Romans chapter 4, I want you to hear this, starting in verse 20. This is talking about Abraham. This is a tremendously helpful passage to think about this. Romans 4.20. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. How did he, how did he grow strong? Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So his faith, though it was wavering, it was growing. Why? Because he knew God was able. Was it him, right? He knew God's word was sure. God was trustworthy, right? It was the object of his faith. So therefore, friends, look to Christ. Don't look to your faith when it's wavering. Trust in Christ. Bank your life on the faith, not your own faith. And the good news is that we must persevere but it is God who preserves us. It's not the knowledge or whims of those on the ship that make it survive the storm, but it is the strength of the ship, right? That's what matters. Psalm 125, verse one, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. It's good news. Thirdly, Christians must have courage. Look at verse 13, the uh, third chunk there. So Paul here doubles down. I thought maybe this was two commands, but it seems to be really one command split in half, I think. I think these are the same words here, and and the same charge, rather. Christians must have courage. Act like men, be strong. I think those are saying really the same thing, just mirror image of each other, but in a different way. So Christian maturity and strength. So not, not just that you should be a man, but he's talking about acting like a man. Have a mature, strong faith and be strong. And this charge to have a mature faith is laid upon every believer. That your faith should be pressing forward rather than sitting idly. Ephesians 6.10, the the big chapter that we love, you probably love, about the armor of God, right? The command is finally, be strong, verse 10, in the Lord and the strength of his might. Again, in today's world, I think a a flimsy Christianity, it just won't do. I mean, you will not last. You will be overtaken. As the world increases in hostility, Christians need to have this masculine, this manly, this mature, strong faith, a strong, deep-rooted trust in Christ. So though Christ is our object, that's true. Now Paul's saying, act like it, right? If it is true, act like it. Act like a man, right? We live in a world, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase. It's a good phrase. Uh, people call it the culture of death in the United States, which means death to truth. There is no truth. Uh, Death to babies in the womb because it's our body. We do what we want. We can mutilate children's bodies because who cares how God designed them? It's death to reality. There is no objective truth. And our faith 
as Christians, we cannot hide in the bomb shelter. We, we just, we cannot hide. We have to be alive. I know, maybe you know this, that in other countries, Christians get slaughtered. I mean, it's a fact. Uh, especially like in Africa, where it's strongly Muslim. Uh, week, every week I hear a report. Eight Christians killed. Seven Christians killed. A village slaughtered. I know we don't have swords that we're worried about. Not yet. But we will be silenced one day. Do you know that? Do you believe that? It's coming. Here's Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So do you hear what God is saying? God is looking for Christians who are bold. He's actually looking for them. That he will be glorified in them who, who stand beside this great champion of the faith, namely Christ, and hide under him. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 23, do you remember the story of David and his mighty men? Do you remember those stories? These are amazing people. I mean, these guys are just crazy men. One guy named Benaniah chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and just killed it with bare hands. I want that guy in my family. He's cool, right? These men that would just wipe out armies with one storm, just these strong men. And what God is asking for is who will be these mighty, strong believers to stand alongside the son of David, namely Christ, who will hold the line and stand firm in the evil day. As a Christian, that is our responsibility. And yet, let me encourage you and warn myself and warn others in this way that in one sense, a church is only as strong as its leaders. Let me say that again. A church is, in one sense, only as strong as its leaders because the members typically do not go beyond the leaders. Namely, think of David's mighty men. If they just stood back, they're not going to go. Why don't you go? I'm not going. You go. So as a pastor and to deacons, let me encourage you, brothers, to, to hold the line, to examine yourself in light of Scripture, to hold the charge, to uphold God's word without wavering. Right? It's not, we're not just leaders because we want to be. If that's true, that's good. But we're supposed to represent Christ firmly in a unique, powerful way. And our church will not grow past us. Be encouraged. So pray for your leaders. Pray for me. I'm a weak person. Pray for your deacons. Pray for them. We're weak. We need more faith. We need more of Christ's grace. One of my favorite stories about acting the man, uh, being manly, as Paul said here, is on October 16, 1555, so a couple years ago, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for their faith in Christ in Oxford. There were par- those were perilous times to be a Christian against the state. I want to set the stage for you. It's a very simple story. But I want you to hear this. It's very encouraging. Uh, Hugh Latimer was one of the bravest Christian preachers of his day. He boldly and publicly preached against, uh, so Roman Catholic Church then was state religion, as it kind of still is now in that sense, but they were radically perverse. And in 1539, King Henry VIII, who had many, many wives, maybe you know, he established what he called the Six Articles, which would limit and prohibit a Protestant, so we'd say a Christian, from preaching and teaching. And Hugh Latimer heard that, and he goes, well, I don't care. And he kept preaching, and he was imprisoned for eight years. 
After eight years in 1547, Henry VIII died. So, woohoo, change in office, right? And the very wise, mature, and age-worthy king at age nine, Edward VI, took the throne. So your king is now age nine. What do you think is going to happen? Well, Hugh Lammer was 62 years old at this time. He was in prison for eight years. Now he's 62. And he was released. All right. Freedom, right? For the next five years. And then darkness comes back. In 1553, two years before his death, King Edward died, and the dreaded and tyrannical queen, maybe heard her name, Bloody Mary, took the throne. It's not just a drink, right? She was, I mean, she was bloodthirsty. She killed about, we estimate about 300 Christians. Another man named Nicholas Ridley, who was friends with Hugh Latimer, they, they knew each other, was brought before the queen alongside Latimer, and then on the morning of October 16th, In 1555, the whole town of Oxford gathered to watch these two men burn at the stake. When questioned if they would recant, Ridley said this, (laughs) So long as the breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ and his known truth. And he would seal it with his blood. The burning torch is cast onto the wood. These two men standing facing each other, I believe. We think backs doesn't really matter throne. Hugh Latimer is now age 70 years old. Nicholas Ridley is much younger. And he looks to his friend Hugh, who's older, and he says that he's, he's, he's scared. Naturally so. And Hugh Latimer is age 70, says this, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace. In England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Do you hear what he said? Play the man mature. Don't be a coward, right? Stand firm. Like the fire's going to burn you. Stand firm even in that. And friends, maybe you don't know this, but it was because of martyrdom like those men and about, about 300 women and children and men just like them under Queen Mary's time that you have an English Bible in your hands. Do you know that? That, that your hymnal is in English. That, that, that's an actual thing because of people like this. Mature, brave faith in the public square really did matter. And it's the fear of the Lord that strikes this match, right? It's not just like, all right, I have gusto. I'll grab a sword and go out. It's like, no, it's fear. I fear the Lord more than I fear the circumstances or consequences or even just being coy. It's I fear Christ, right? They saw a really big Jesus and that's why they burned. So let me encourage you not to fall into hiding, Don't have your faith smothered, but stand strong. Play the man, as he said. And may God's truth resound from our lives, from our mouths, and together as we gather. So Paul so far has shown us, Christians must remain watchful. We must continue in the faith. We must have courage. And lastly, Christians must act in love. Look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. That's a very good I think underlining verse of the whole Christian life, isn't it? These two verses almost just seem like, first he was talking about missions and giving, we talked about last time, and now Paul just goes, uh, I need to stop here and give you another just command, and he's going to continue. But this is almost just a, a summary of the Christian life, right? These two verses. Christians must act in love. It is often believed, I think, that Christian love is, it's passive, it's quiet, it's, I don't want to get involved, 
I don't want to do that. That's not loving. As if real love is not offensive, but it's coddling. Uh, there's no jagged edges on it, right? But according to the Bible, real Christian love, it's, it's cruciform, right? It's cross-shaped. True Christian love is defined and takes the shape of a bloody, rough, splintered, sin-bearing cross, right? What does 1 John 4, 8 say? God is what? Love, right? And we know that. And that same God who is love is holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's good, and he's true. So thus, his love is a holy, perfecting love. It's a just and truthful love. It's a good and rich love, right? And the word love here is the word agape. You probably, maybe, maybe that word rings bells. It's, it's God's, it's the definition of how God gives of himself. It's a firm, self-giving love that God has for us. And Paul says, you should have that kind of love. It's a pretty radical charge. Let all that you do be done in love, which means we should have this kind of love in our brains, right? So Christians must be both tender and compassionate as well as holy and truthful. We must not die on the altar of comfort and divorce truth, right? It's like, well, this is easier, so I don't want to do that. We can't divorce truth and holiness from love. We must have both, right? Consider the work of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is the love of Christ, that love of God that he has for you. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So it's it's God's great love that saves sinners, right? He doesn't just say, oh, you're fine how you are. No, he, he warns us, right? Living without Christ, you are under wrath. It's judgment, right? He doesn't coddle us or lie to us or hide truth, right? He shows our condition, reveals to us our deadness and our sins. And then Christ dies for us. His love is active. It pursues us. It gives us spiritual life raises us from the dead. So sinners are called to repent and to trust Christ, right? Knowing that God really saves bad people. It's the gospel, right? He, he really does. There's, there's, there's no decent people and good. There's, we're all just dead in our sins, the Bible says, right? And it's God's love that puts you in this room this morning to hear, to repent, to believe, and to confess Christ. So God's love is a pursuing love. It's for his namesake. It's directed at God's glory and his word. So therefore, real biblical love is about God's glory, right? Remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That's been quite a bit ago, but it's do all things to the glory of God, right? But Paul says here, you should do everything with love. How does that work? Well, if you're doing all things to the glory of God, you are doing all things in love. When God is your chief goal, everything you do for that is loving by definition, Right? Because that's what God does. He acts for his namesake. So it's loving to warn unbelievers of judgment. It is loving, 1 Corinthians 5, to confront sin. It is loving to encourage weak believers. It is loving to pray for others' conversions. I mean, we can go on and on and on. This is real Christian love does these things, right? It's loving to bring truth to lies. It's loving to hold fast to God's word. Psalm 97.10 says this, O you who love the Lord, hate 
evil. It's a command, right? It's good to love the Lord, therefore you should hate evil. Right? Those are being next door neighbors, according to the Bible, right? Thus, the more we increase in love for God, the less we'll be drawn towards our sin. So this morning, I encourage you, I hope with Paul you're hearing this, examine your life. Is this kind of love in your life? It can't just be in your head. It can't just be on this page. This is, I'm here too. Man, I struggle in some of these areas. Lord, help me to be this way. Does this flavor resonate with you? Friends, may we, all we do be done in love. It's, it may, remember, it's God's firm, immovable love for us in Christ that sustains our cold, ebbing and flowing hearts for him. It's his white hot love for us in Christ that will increase our love for him. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Isn't that good news, friends? That Christ's love for you is not dependent on how well you perform yesterday or tomorrow. It's not changing because you were better 10 years ago or better tomorrow. It's, it's, not, it's everlasting love. It's committed to you. John 13, 1, Jesus, John describes Jesus having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Friends, Christ loves you to the end. That's the love he has for you. The love of Christ for you will never perish. Lest his name and his cross be dashed to pieces, his love for for God and his zeal for God's glory will always be upheld because God will not let his glory be muddied up by us. Christ will sooner diminish his cross than he will fail in his love for you. And he won't ever do that. So again, Paul's four charges that Christians must remain watchful. We must continue in the faith. We must be courageous. We must act in love. These are weighty matters for us believers. But as 1 Peter 2.11 says, we are strangers in this world. So this resolve is for people who are strange. So if you think you're strange and you're a Christian, you're a good company because we are strange by nature. Doesn't this kind of Christianity sound odd? Like, that's just not, that's just weird. That's a lot. We're strangers, friends. Don't forget that. Arm yourselves with God's word. Pray yourself hot for the battle. And do all things with one day in mind. The last day, the day when God will hold us all accountable for how we acted in this life. What we did and didn't do. Reward us accordingly. So let us turn from a, a jellyfish, I love that phrase, uh, a soft Christianity, and put our trust in Christ. I want to read you one verse and we'll close. Instead of being a jellyfish, Proverbs 28 verse 1 says this, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Let's pray.